As always, we're truly honored that you're watching the program, and we extend to you that cordial invitation to worship with us at the Rainbow Drive Church of Christ, 2201 Rainbow Drive in Gadsden. Our Bible study is at 9.30 this morning, and our worship hour at 10.30. Our er, evening worship hour is at 6 o'clock p.m. Come and be with us. I'm certain you'll say it was good to have been there. You'll meet a wonderful group of people, and you'll see how the early church worship God. That's the only way that we want to worship God, exactly the way the early church did, and want to be Christians exactly the way the Bible teaches Christianity. So do come and take advantage of the opportunity to be with us. You'll be a very honored and welcome guest, and you won't be treated any better anywhere in all the world than you'll be treated right here at the Rainbow Drive Church of Christ. Now, at, uh, at back at Rainbow Drive, I'm preaching or delivering a series of sermons from the Gospel of John. From time to time, I'll be sharing some of them, those sermons with our television audience. And I'm going to share this morning the third sermon in that series of sermons taken from John, the first chapter, the 35th through the 51st verses, the 35th through the concluding verse. So let's read those verses together, and then we'll study them together. And bear with me during the reading. Take your Bibles out and tape if you have them handy, and read along with me. Again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples, looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed him. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt, and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother, Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee, and findeth Philip, and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathanael, and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there be any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite, indeed in him in whom is no guile. Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. He saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see the heaven open, and the angels of God ascending, and descending upon the Son of Man. In this account now, we have six men named. John the Baptist, John the Apostle, the eventual author of this particular gospel. We have Andrew, Simon Peter, Andrew's brother. We have Philip and Nathaniel. It begins with John the Baptist. Again, the next day after John stood, and two of his disciples... John the Baptist, friends and brethren, was one of the great preachers of all time. And like all great preachers, he directed people to the Son of God, directed people to the Savior, directed people to the Messiah. I must decrease, but he must increase. I'm not worthy to bear his shoes. I indeed baptize with water, but there cometh one after me that shall baptize you with fire and with the Holy Ghost. He was always directing people to the Son of God. Now, when John preached... Cities emptied to go out and hear him preach in the wilderness. He attracted the people. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that he was a, an extremely popular preacher, for he was eventually beheaded for what he preached. But it does mean that he preached extremely interestingly, and it does mean that he 
captured the attention of the people, it does mean that they flocked to hear him. And as I've already pointed out, John always emphasized the Son of God, always directed people to the Son of God. You can't be a great gospel preacher. In fact, you can't be preaching the Word of God in the, man in the manner that God wants it preached if you don't direct people to Jesus. The problem with so many preachers today, friends and brethren, is they direct people to themselves rather than the Son of God. When people are walking out of an assembly after hearing a sermon, ideally, we don't want them to say, what a great preacher. What we want them to say is, what a great Savior. Yet so often, it's just the exact way that God wouldn't have it to be. People praise the preacher rather than the Christ that the preacher should be directing the people to. We must emphasize above everything else in our preaching, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2 and 2, I'm determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. On the way home from a gospel meeting here a while back, I was listening to a tape of a sermon from a preacher that's extremely popular, just very, very popular, and draws, I guess, pretty great crowd, pretty great crowds wherever he goes. But as I listened to that sermon, all I could hear in it, and all he seemingly did, was told a lot of jokes and a lot of stories. He kept the people laughing all the way through the sermon. The sermon was extremely humorous, and people were entertained. And I thought to myself, now, obviously that's the kind of preaching that a whole lot of people want today. That's the kind of preaching that a whole lot of preachers are doing. But friends and brethren, that's not the kind of preaching that we read about in the Bible. In the first century, in biblical times, when they preached Jesus Christ and Him crucified, when people like John the Baptist paved the way for the coming of Christ, they didn't entertain people. They pricked people's hearts. They convicted people. They converted people. They led people to the Son of God. And they weren't in competition with the entertainers of their day. They were trying to get people to see that Jesus was the Son of God and that they had to turn to Jesus, that they had to follow after Jesus. Their purpose, their sole intent in the preaching of the gospel was to lead people to Jesus Christ where salvation can be found. Lead them to the Messiah who then in turn could, say, could, could uh, save them. The 36th verse, and looking upon Jesus, he walked, he saith, Behold, the Lamb of God. Evidently, the way Jesus walked, you could uh, see his heavenly Father glorifying him. You know, in the 18th verse of John, the first chapter, we read where Jesus declared his heavenly Father. He came into the world and showed people his heavenly Father. He was, as Paul said in Colossians 1, the visible image of the invisible God. He said in John 14 and 9, those who have seen me have seen the Father. He said in John 5 and 23 that we have to honor the Son, even as we honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father who sent him. He said in John 10 and 30, I and the Father are one. Jesus came into the world and he manifested his heavenly Father. He evidently, the way he walked, they could see the heavenly Father in him. People have told me here from Rainbow Drive that my grandson Nathan, that looks like me, walks like me, acts like me, and he talks like talks like me. Well, now, I don't know. That might be an albatross in the life of my grandson, Nathan. But surely the Christian should be conducting himself in such a manner that people see Jesus Christ in him. In Matthew, the fifth chapter, the 16th verse, Jesus says, Let your light shine before men, so that they might see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Jesus glorified the heavenly Father through his life, even the way he walked, obviously glorified the Heavenly Father. We should be glorifying the Heavenly Father and the Savior, Jesus Christ, that came into the world to die for us with our lives and the way that we conduct ourselves. He says, now, behold the Lamb of God. I guess that's 
kind of a metaphor that John was using there. The people in the first century, the Jewish people that John was preaching to, they obviously uh, understood what the offering up of the Paschal Lamb was all about. That's what they had done. That's the way they worshipped God. They offered up these animals, animal sacrifices. So they were very familiar with the offering up of the Paschal Lamb in their worship of God. Now John the Baptist says, the ultimate Paschal Lamb is coming. I want you to follow after the ultimate Paschal Lamb. I want you to follow after him who's going to make the ultimate sacrifice. Him who's going to bear the sins of the world in his body. The Paschal Lambs that you've been offering up for all of these years, they sort of rolled your sins forward. They sort of tore, sort of took your sins aside for a year until they could be, as they were constantly atoned for, but they could not be completely atoned for until the ultimate Paschal Lamb would come into the world until the ultimate sacrifice would be made in your behalf. That's who I'm directing you to, the ultimate Paschal Lamb, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And two of the disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Now, if I understand this situation correctly, this was the second day that John was preaching. He preached the first day, and there were no, as we would call it, responses. Now, he didn't change his preaching the second day. He kept right on preaching the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. Kept right on attempting to, to direct people to Jesus Christ. Now, the second day, two people responded to the into what we would call today, I guess, the invitation. At least two people responded to John the Baptist's preaching, and they followed after Jesus. Now, you know, many of us preachers who do a lot of gospel meeting work would say if only two people responded in our meetings, and sometimes only two people do respond. But you know what we say after a meeting such as that? That wasn't too successful a meeting. We didn't uh, get the word across very well. We didn't do very well in, the, in, in that particular meeting. Well, I've thought for a long time, friends and brethren, that we might be putting far too much emphasis on numbers. You know, it's great to see great numbers. I'm thrilled when great numbers of people come down the aisle of my preaching. But we also need to understand that you can preach in a gospel meeting where two people respond, and that might be the most successful meeting you ever preached in. You might preach in a meeting where no one responds visibly, and it still might be one of the most successful meetings that you've ever preached in. Look at the two men who responded here and what they eventually did for the cause of Jesus Christ. One of these men was the Apostle John. He went on to become the great apostle, one of the three that uh, Paul described in Galatians 2 and 9, I believe it is, as pillars in the church, along with James and along with Peter. He became a very close and intimate friend of the Son of God himself. It was John that Jesus held in his bosom in John, the 13th chapter, at the Feast of the Passover when the Lord's Supper was instituted. It was John, along with Peter and James, who accompanied Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane. It was John, along with Peter and James, was privileged to, to, uh, to see the Mount of Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration, see Jesus transfigured before men. It was John, the Apostle John, that stood at the bottom of the cross with Jesus as he was dying for the sins of the world. This Apostle John wrote five of the books of the New Testament, the Gospel of John that we're studying from this morning, the three epistles of John, and the book of Revelation. John was exiled to the Isle of Patmos where he was given the honor and privilege of, of, the, uh, of viewing heaven, getting to see a portion of heaven. So he went on to become a great, great man of God and went on to lead many, many people to the truth. The other one that responded on this occasion was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, who we read later on in this chapter led Peter to the Lord. Now, we all know what Peter went on to do. 
We all know what great things that he accomplished. He preached the first sermon of the Christian dispensation. On the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 Jewish people responded to that heaven's first invitation in the Christian dispensation. He preached the first sermons or converted the first Gentiles. The first Gentile converts were converted under Peter's preaching in Acts 10, chapter uh, Cornelius and his household. He became a great, great man of God. He became a pillar in the church along with John. He became one who led many, many people to the Lord. So from these two responses, doesn't seem like many to our way of thinking, but from these two responses came absolutely tremendous results, friends and brethren. And that's why we need to be very careful about putting too much emphasis on numbers. Preach the word and the Lord will take care of the rest. He'll see that the Lord word won't return unto him void. Back in 1975, I held a gospel meeting in the country of Malta, south of Italy. I was gone for three weeks. I suppose the longest three weeks of my life. I wasn't gone three or four days when I was counting the days in which to which, which I would be returning home. I couldn't wait to get home to my wife and family. Missed them very, very much. Well, over in Malta, and after the meeting, the last night of the meeting, we baptized one Maltese woman in the Mediterranean Sea. That was the only baptism in that meeting. Now, a lot of people might say, Boy, that was a long way to go. And that was a great sacrifice to make just to convert one soul. Well, friends and brethren, if we went all the way across the world and back again and made every sacrifice known to mankind to convert one soul, that sacrifice wouldn't be too great. But a, a number of years ago, I saw the former missionary from the island of Malta that I stayed with when I was over there in that gospel meeting. And I asked him how that woman that we baptized in the Mediterranean Sea on the last night of the meeting was doing. He said she's doing great, and not only that, but her two sons have obeyed the gospel, have come over to the States, studied to be preachers, now back in Malta, now preaching the gospel in that particular country, that island country. The missionary told me that he was not allowed to go back on the island after leaving there. It's a uh, island of about 98, 99% Roman Catholic. They wouldn't allow any missionaries to come back on that island. But these two young men who... Because of their mother obeying the gospel, and they in turn learned the truth and came over to the States and studied to preach, are now back in Malta preaching the gospel, keeping that church going. Friends and brethren, however many people are one to the Lord through those two young men, and if those two young men are successful in keeping the Lord's church going in that particular country, the country of Malta, that gospel meeting that I held on the island of Malta, 1975, in which there was one visible response, might be among the most productive meetings I've ever been involved in. So, friends and brethren, we must not, we cannot put all of the emphasis on, on numbers. We just have to preach the Word of God. Now, these two men followed Jesus. John directed them to Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following and saith unto them, What seek ye? Why are you coming after me? Why are you following after me? Friends and brethren, one of the great problems in the religious world today is so many people follow after Jesus for the wrong reasons. They follow after him because they're seeking the loaves and the fish. They follow after him because they have some kind of a physical illness that they think the Lord will heal if they follow after him. They follow after him because they're afraid of going to hell. They have a fear of hell. They follow after him because they think that as a Christian all of their problems on this earth are going to be eliminated. That they're going, everything is going to go smooth for them in this life. That they're going to find advances in their place of employment or get better jobs, have nicer homes, drive larger automobiles. They're just going to be more successful in life. That's the reason many people follow after Jesus. And those are the wrong reasons for following after Jesus. 
We have no promise from the Son of God that because we follow after Him, we're going to have it better on this earth. We're going to have any our diseases healed. We haven't got any promise. Certainly, if we have illnesses, we pray to the Lord that those illnesses be healed. And God working through nature today in that manner very well might see that they're healed. I've seen that happen many, many times. Believe in the power of prayer. There's great, great power in prayer. And we have a God who works through nature today. He doesn't perform miracles that supersede or transcend nature, but works through nature in harmony with nature and answers those prayers. But that's not the reason for becoming a Christian. We're going to die. All people die. The sun shines on the good and the evil, and the rain descends on the just and the unjust. And the Christians have no promises when it comes to being wealthier wealthier, or more successful on this earth than anyone else. In many instances, things might be worse for the Christian. They were worse for Paul. He became the off-scouring of all things under this present day. He was beaten, mocked, scourged, and eventually martyred for the cause of Christ. It became worse for just about all Christians in the first century who had to give up their lives in so many instances for the cause of Christ. The rewards that Jesus promises us are not for this earth, friends and brethren, but for the next world. So when you follow after Jesus because you're looking for some kind of an earthly reward, you're following after him for the wrong reasons. And Jesus says, what seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt, the bowl with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. You know, people will sometimes ask the question, why do preachers put so much emphasis on attending the services on Sunday night and Wednesday night? Why do they put so much emphasis on not forsaking the assembly? Friends and brethren, one of the reasons that we place so much emphasis on not forsaking the assembly is because of what we read right here in the 39th verse of the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Where these two men, Andrew and John, went and abode with Jesus for that day. They wanted to be with Jesus. They loved Jesus. They were followers of Jesus. And now they wanted to be with Him. Well, now, friends and brethren, the principle about Sunday evening and Wednesday evening services is, if we really love Jesus, we'll want to be with Him, won't we? In Matthew 18 and 20, Jesus says, Where two or more gathered in my name, there am I in their midst. Did you ever stop to consider that the person who sits home on Sunday night to watch television rather than gather with the saints or with the saints or those of a like faith and worship God in spirit and true or truth or sits home on Wednesday night rather than gathering with the saints and with the people in the assembly and studying the word of God and worshiping God? Do you ever stop to realize or to think that that person is saying that a television program is more important to him than the fellowship of Jesus Christ himself? You see, one's attitude towards the Sunday night and Wednesday night services, in many instances, friends and brethren, determines his relationship with the Lord. If we're not converted to a lot of ritualism, we're going to want to be to church Sunday night, Wednesday night. We're going to want to be where the Lord is because we love the Lord. If we're just converted to the system that Jesus taught and we just go through some ritualistic formal actions on every Lord's Day morning and it's something that we have to do, Obviously, we're never going to have the kind of relationship with the Lord that God intends for us to have. It all begins with a love for God and a love for Jesus Christ. And when we love Jesus, we're going to want to worship Him. And when we want to worship Him, we'll get the satisfaction and gratification out of the Christian religion that God intended for us to have. The 40th verse, one of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. We've already alluded to that. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. What's the first thing that Andrew did, friends and brethren, after his converted, conversion to the Lord, after he started following the Lord? Went out and he led his brother to the Lord. 
He went out and he brought someone else to Christ. That's one of the true signs of real conversion. When you become concerned and interested in other souls, in other people, I sometimes get the impression that many Christian people have never at any time in their life ever made any kind of an effort to lead people to the Lord or to lead people to the church for which Jesus died, to lead people to the truth. That, friends and brethren, is obvious in situations like that, that these people aren't as converted as Andrew was. They don't believe as strongly as Andrew did. Not only don't they lead their own relatives to the Lord or attempt to lead their own relatives to the Lord, they don't even give an invitation to people that they come across or people in their everyday life and invite them to church, invite them to services. They do nothing in an effort to lead people to the Lord. Friends and brethren, how can one really believe what Jesus taught and not be interested in the souls of other people? How can one really believe in heaven and believe in hell? And not be concerned where other people are going to spend eternity, either in heaven or in hell. Andrew didn't go on to become as notorious, if you will, as Peter. He didn't go on to preach the first sermon of the Christian dispensation on the day of Pentecost. He didn't go on to convert the first Gentiles. He didn't go on to become as prominent in the church as Peter was, as far as visibility is concerned. But I have a strong feeling, friends and brethren, that in the eyes of God... Andrew is every bit as blessed and every bit as important as the Peters ever will be. What the church possibly needs more than anything else today is more Andrews, more people that are just willing in an obscure manner to go out and do whatever they can do for the cause of Christ and lead people in whatever way they can lead people to Jesus Christ and His truths. They don't have to go out and get a whole lot of attention. They don't attract attention to themselves. They're just dedicated people that love the Lord and love lost souls. If we could fill the church up, friends and brethren, with Andrews, we'd experience a religious revival the likes of which our minds are incapable of comprehending. But anyway, when he brought him to Jesus, and when Jesus held him and said, beheld him and said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah, which thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. Jesus gave him a new name immediately. Called him Cephas. Simon to Cephas. Do you know, friends and brethren, that every time a person, every person who ever becomes a New Testament Christian, that the Lord gives them a new name in a sense? You know, we were once worldly sinners lost in sin. When you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and obey His precious gospel and appropriate His blood to your life and He adds you unto, your, unto His church, you now become a saved saint. For we were once lost sinners. Now we're Christians. We're the name of Jesus Christ. Christians, wear the name of him who died in your stead and my stead. Every child of God has had his name changed, at least in a spiritual sense, where we once identified ourselves as just someone who was in the world. If somebody asked me what I am today, I'd tell them I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. So I've taken on a new name as a follower of Christ than I had before becoming a follower of the Lord. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip, and saith unto him, Follow me. Now, Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. The word Bethsaida means fish town. Philip was a fisherman, as was Andrew and Peter and James and John. They were fishermen. Now, Jesus Christ, friends and brethren, never was concerned about a person's status on this earth. I'm certain that fishermen back then, that that uh, way of making a living might have been looked down on by a lot of people, by a lot of more success, successful people or people that uh, were among the elite. A fisherman is one, you know, that... Uh, he doesn't emanate the best odor. The smell of fish is not the most pleasing odor that you can uh, that you can inhale. So a fisherman is a type of person that's very often rough and crude and coarse. That didn't matter to Jesus. 
When Jesus saw Philip, and when he saw Andrew, and he saw Peter, and when he saw James, and when he saw John, you know what he saw? He saw people who needed his heavenly Father. He saw people who needed to be redeemed by the blood that he was about to shed. And it didn't make an iota of difference to Jesus whether he was preaching to a fisherman or whether he was preaching to Nicodemus, a member of the Sanhedrin. Whether he was preaching to a sinful woman in Luke, the seventh chapter, or whether he was preaching to Caiaphas, a Jewish high priest. Whether he was preaching to the lowest type person imaginable, or whether he was preaching to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. None of that mattered. They were people who needed salvation. They were people who were outside of the ark of safety, strangers from the covenant of promise, aliens from the covenant of promise, strangers from the commonwealth of Israel. And Jesus looked on them as people who needed salvation, who needed his heavenly father, who needed the blood that he was about to shed. And he never changed the message of his father, regardless of who he was preaching to. Friends and brethren, if I were preaching to this morning to President Bush... I would have to preach to him exactly the way I preach to anyone else on the face of this earth. If President Bush were to say to me, what must I do to be saved? I'd have to give him the same answer that Peter gave those people on the day of Pentecost. You repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter what a person's status is on this earth. God is no respecter of persons, as Peter says in Acts 10, chapter the 34th verse. And we will stand before God, not on the basis of what uh, position that we attained on this earth, not on the basis of how successful or unsuccessful we were on this earth, not on the basis of how popular or unpopular we were on this earth. Not on the basis of how much attention we attracted to ourselves or whether we lived uh, a life in which nobody ever noticed us. Those won't be that, the criteria. That isn't what we'll stand before God and give an account of. Every person on the face of this earth, be he king, be she a queen, it makes no difference what position they attain on this earth. They'll stand before God and give an account of whether they have accepted Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made on their behalf, the way the Bible teaches we must accept him, or whether they have rejected him. That will be the criteria in the judgment for salvation. And whether we're a king, whether we're a queen, whether we're a pauper, the standard will be exactly the same. We've just about run out of time. I have so much more that I'd like to say to you on this particular, in this particular lesson, but obviously we can only get in as much as time will allow. But Philip goes on, he does the exact same thing that Andrew did. He finds Nathaniel and saith unto him, We found him, him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel said unto him, Can there be any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. There was prejudice in the world back then, just as there is now. Maybe even if it's possible, more prejudice in the world back then than there is now. Nathaniel evidently was prejudiced against anybody that came out of Nazareth. And he immediately asked the question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, Philip took a little different approach than many of us take. He just said, come and see. He didn't argue with Nathaniel. He just said, come and see. I think one of the mistakes that I've made in the past in trying to lead people to the Lord is I've argued with them more than I've attempted to lead them to the Lord. I've argued in defense of what I believe in as a New Testament Christian, rather than saying to them, come and see. Maybe, maybe it would be more efficacious to tell people to come and see, rather than to argue with them. 
Come and see how we worship God exactly the way the Bible teaches us to worship Him. Come and see how we take the Lord's Supper on the first day of each week, just as the early church did. Come and see how our songs of praises are sung to Him in the same manner that the early church songs sang songs of praises to Him. Come and see how our preaching is to the best of our ability, just the way the early church preached. Come and see for yourself. And I think if we could get people to come and see, they would be very impressed with what we have and what we believe in and what we're practicing. And I believe possibly we could lead many more people to the truth by asking them to come and see. Then we can lead to the truth by arguing and creating creating uh, walls instead of building bridges. Let us tell people to come and see. Let us love their souls. We love your souls. Every person in this audience this morning, we're so grateful that you've watched this program. My prayer is that God will bless you all. My prayer is also that, you'll, that you will repent of your sins and obey the precious gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for watching the program.